Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our invention series on the history of document duplication and facsimile technology. If you haven't heard part one yet, what are you doing here? You might want to go back and listen to that one first. But uh, I guess before we get started today, we could do a brief refresher on what we talked about in the last episode. So, uh, Rob, we discussed the emergence of document-based culture in business, politics, religion, and society through the ancient world, and uh, some examples of ways that ancient people and people in document-scarce environments might think about documents and copying differently than we would tend to think about uh, those subjects today. Uh, we talked about the long history of the scribe, a figure of uh, of vast importance, who usually spend most or even all of their time merely copying documents. Uh, we discussed some early labor-saving devices designed to duplicate documents without the need for hand copying. Of course, you know, most copying since uh, since the invention of writing has been done not by machines, but by scribes or, or human copyists having to make copies of, uh, of books and letters and everything by hand. But these early la- labor-saving devices included things like the so-called polygraph, not the lie detector test, but uh, this was a name for a device designed to produce an exact copy of a handwritten document at the time of its origin by transferring the movement of your pen through a system of levers to a second pen writing on a second piece of paper. Uh, And then also we talked about things like the copy press or the letter copying press, which refers to a family of related devices which all operate on the principle of moistening a very thin piece of paper and then smashing it against an original document in a gigantic clamp or sometimes in a, in a kind of press or roller to cause some ink to bleed through from the original document onto the copy paper, giving you a copy to keep for your records. And we talked about how versions of the copy press were widely used throughout the 19th century and even somewhat into the 20th century, though they will start to overlap with other technologies and and uh, duplication and facsimile solutions that we'll be talking about today. Now, I wanted to throw in a quick note about facsimiles. Uh, we, we titled these episodes Facsimile, and uh, I thought we, we might point out uh, that um, you get into the idea of duplications and duplicated documents, but then there is the realm of, uh, of facsimiles, uh, which is where you really get into the idea of something that is supposed to be a perfect copy, uh, a perfect reproduction of a given text. Um, and uh, this this can be seen in the Latin. Uh, the Latin is to make alike, uh, and it forms the root of the of the facsimile that is referenced in the in the word fax machine. Though a fax machine doesn't really produce a true facsimile, 
because this generally, uh, again, this gen- generally denotes a copy that is perfect or as close to perfect as possible uh, in every regard. Uh, and in some cases, we're talking about not merely the contents of the text, but the way in which it is written, illustrated, and even bound uh, in some cases. So a, a facsimile is especially useful if the original is both highly desired in its original form, but also fragile, exceedingly rare or valuable, not ideal for wider use or travel. Um, there are numerous examples of this, but but one that uh, I was looking at uh, just yesterday, I mean, not the book itself, obviously, but uh, as an example, there's this uh, book called the, the Codex Gygus, uh, and it is the largest extant medieval illuminated manuscript. It was created in the 13th century, and it is uh, 36 inches or 92 centimeters long, and it also contains a full-page portrait of the devil. Um, so I included a photograph um, of a facsimile of this manuscript for you to look at here, Joe. Oh yes, I've seen this. Uh, I've seen this devil illustration before. And it, a funny note on uh, on co- originals and copies. I think when I've seen this before, the comparison that happened in my mind is, oh, that's similar to the illustrations of Terry Gilliam, like the ones that would appear <laughs> in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually I think I've got the, the, the continuity backwards there, don't I? So I guess probably Gilliam was trying to imitate some of the medieval illustration style, like we would see here. Like this looks kind of mm-hmm. like the, the beast in the cave in, in the Holy Grail, but I, I yeah. guess the beast in the cave is probably somewhat imitating this sort of drawing. Yeah, this devil has a wild and comedic appearance, at least to, to modern eyes. He's he's pretty he's pretty gnarly. It looks like he could be on the bottom of a of a skateboard or riding a rat fink car around. You know, <laughs> um, there are other great examples. I think of of modern facsimiles. Uh, for instance, uh, the poetry of of William Blake. Uh, these were originally printed from copper plates. They were hand colored, and certainly you can read. The text you can read, you can just you know look up the text of a poem by William Blake on the internet, uh, read it in a, a you know simple text format, and and it'll be great. I mean, the poetry uh, you know d- does not lose anything uh, via its transformation into modern text. Likewise, you can just pull up the illustrations and look at those. But the originals were unique, and they provided a distinct reading experience, so one can understand why the facsimile experience is still desired. And yes, you can still get facsimiles of William Blake's original publications. And of course, the same is true of various historic illuminated manuscripts uh, where the book itself is a work of art. Uh, The same can be said of various historic government documents. And, uh, you know, if you get into the realm of fiction, I guess you could also say that you would desire a a facsimile of certain uh, books that do great harm, like the Necronomicon, the, the Book of the Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows, or the Book of Sand, something like that. Or maybe you wouldn't. Maybe the, 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 the strange things that make them dangerous uh, are only going to be found in that singular text. And maybe in each in their own way, these are commentaries on the, uh, the desirability of a singular text, of having that book in your hand that has some sort of uh, a history that reaches back through time in a way that it, it hasn't been translated, that hasn't been transformed by a scribe. Yes, and of course, uh, the idea of making exact copies of a page as it as it looks in its original form would become uh, much easier later on with digital uh, facsimile and duplication techniques, uh, and and even to some extent with like zero graphic techniques, which we'll talk about later in this episode. Though those would probably often not be 
producing perfectly faithful or full color copies, they would at least give you uh, the gist of the appearance of an original page rather than just, say, the, uh, the, the code of the text appearing on that page. Speaking of codes, uh, I thought it might be good to, especially before we sort of leave the ancient world behind us and, and continue to talk about more recent uh, inventions in the, the world of document uh, reproduction and duplication, uh, yeah, I thought we might talk about some of the, the origins of document security. So, in, in our last episode, we did mention the use of sealed envelopes on tab- tablets in Mesopotamia. This, of course, is one way to secure a document and make it so that no one can read it without making it blatantly obvious that somebody did so. But another way is, of course, to keep the information itself, which is sometimes referred to as the plain text, secret by encoding it. In this, uh, we turn to the realm of encryption, and encryption dates back to ancient Egypt, at least as far back as 1900 BCE. Uh, This according to anthropologist Brian Fagan, uh, working with writing historian Andrew Robinson, who's written some some wonderful books about uh, the history of writing. Um, This is pointed out in the the 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. but uh, military ciphers date back to around the 5th century BCE in Greece, where they were used by the Spartans, and the substitution cipher was used by the Romans during the 1st century CE. So the examples that Fagan and Robinson bring up um, uh, in, in this brief chapter in the 70 Great Inventions uh, are, are really quite interesting. So first of all, the, the Egyptian example, this wasn't actually used to send messages, but rather as a way of encoding multiple readings into a single um, a stela of hieroglyphics. Uh, which meant the, the, it was all about just challenging the reader. You can think of it as uh, just um, uh, sort of encryption uh, merely for, I wouldn't say entertainment purposes, but um, uh, without any true practical uh, purpose. Well, I, I wouldn't discount the entertainment function. I mean, one of the most entertaining things is to have the sensation that you have discovered a secret meaning. Yeah. There, there, are, uh, there are whole genres of literature based around this. Now, the Spartan example is really uh, neat because the, Spartan, uh, the Spartans made use of a special staff called a, a skytali. And, uh, and yes, Dune fans out there, uh, this is the name of, a, of, the, of the face dancer character of um, the, the Tlilaxu that shows up in Dune Messiah, uh, which is rather fitting. But uh, this would be, the way the system works is you would have this special staff, the, the, the Skatali, and then you would have a leather strip that would be wrapped around this uh, you know, specific wooden staff in a spiral fashion without overlap. Um, I hope everybody can picture that in your head. Otherwise, you can just look up an image of this. It's uh, S-C-Y-T-A-L-E. Then what you would do is you would write your message horizontally down the staff. Uh, so, you know, here's the staff. If you, had, if you had the staff with this wrapping around it and you laid it out on the table in front of you, well, there would be your message across it. And then you could, you know, sort of roll it almost like, a, uh, like, a, like the roller of a typewriter to see other lines of text. Okay, once that message is in place, you unwind the strap, which now is just going to be nonsense if you try to read it. If you try and read it, you know, as a a ribbon of of text, it's just going to be nonsense. And you can't just wrap it around any staff uh, and uh, and reproduce it. First of all, you have to know, you know, how it's to be wrapped. And then you need a staff with the exact same diameter. And so this is what is called a uh, transposition cipher. Oh, okay. So th- this is basically a numerical cipher for unlocking the code, but the cipher is based in the circumference of the staff in your hand. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, tied up with this this physical key uh, to unlock the code. Though, uh, to be clear, transposition ciphers don't necessarily uh, need a stick, or you know. But this is this is a, a, you know, the earliest example we have of this sort of thing. Uh, the Romans, however, again, they made use of a substitution cipher in which uh, your symbols are replaced by new symbols, usually via um, a certain algorithm, and it can be a very simple algorithm. The basic version of this, as used by the Romans. Uh, would be to list out all the Latin letters and then sub each one out for a letter three down from its current position. Uh, And this was exactly the system that Julius Caesar used. Now, this makes me think about how security issues with the contents of sensitive documents have really changed since the ancient world when documents themselves were scarce. I mean, there you could say, okay, well, imagine there's a sensitive document. Maybe you don't want certain people seeing it. You don't want people making unauthorized copies of it. You don't want people making changes to it. For whatever reason, you need to keep that document secure. It's a lot easier when there's just one fixed physical form of that document to start with. Uh, We live in a totally different world now, right? We live in a world of limitless, lossless copying in which most documents are digital. And that unleashes completely different concerns about security, uh, because you, you can't look at where the one original physical copy of the document is. If the original is digital, you can assume that there is pretty easy copying of it or of the information in it. And it can be really difficult Uh, especially given all of the other technology we have to put limits on that. Like people can try to do things like uh, password protect, uh, access to documents, encryption for for the retrieval of sensitive documents and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, everybody's got a camera in their phone and uh, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So even if like you're in a secure location looking at a document that's for your eyes only, if you've got your camera, you could take a picture of the screen. I mean, we just live in a completely different environment when it comes to the sensitivity of, of document contents. It's a lot harder to keep a lid on things today. Right. But assuming you trust the person who's actually looking at the document, not to take pictures of it and, and share them with whoever, uh, there are tools available today that I guess were not available at this time, such as the stuff we were just mentioning, uh, you know, uh, uh, password protection, encryption, and digital gating of access to documents and things like that. So, in in a weird way, like access has become easier than ever to control, but also harder to control in the in the strictest possible sense. Mm-hmm. So the examples I bring up here, you know, largely just sort of provides some, you know, basic bedrock of uh, of encryption. You know, obviously the, the ages in which these were used, it was a different it was a different time. Um, and uh, I and uh, if memory serves, um, Fagan and Robinson also pointed out that. You know, you just don't see as many examples of encryption in the ancient world as, as you might expect to find, because it's as we as we related, documents were important. These these empires and um, and, and kingdoms they 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 were run on documentation, uh, and so you would think you would see more examples of encryption. But uh, yeah, maybe part of that is just a lot of times you're dealing with singular documents and uh, and you know something far removed from uh, what we have in the modern world. Yeah, so there's a physical scarcity. There's only a single original document to begin with, but I guess also there is lower lower levels of literacy mean that means there is less opportunity for someone to read this sensitive document. Mm-hmm. There's more I want to come back to actually later in this episode about how the world has changed when we transition from document scarcity to 
uh, not only document abundance, but probably document overload. But but I guess before we get there, we should talk more about the history of these document uh, duplication and facsimile technologies. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. So picking up after the example of things like the copy press that we talked about in the last episode, what took over before we got to uh, things like computers and the modern photocopier? Uh, Well, I think it is time to talk about carbon paper. Ah, yes. So carbon paper was, in fact, I've used carbon paper in my, you know, this is not something that completely vanished uh, before we were born in I remember I've had some jobs where I actually had to do stuff on carbon paper. This was in the 21st century. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not at how stuff works, right? I don't remember us ever having to write articles on carbon paper. (laughs) Uh, But so, okay, carbon paper was invented long before it became a dominant player in the document duplication uh, world uh, throughout office settings and stuff. And there are many variations, but basically all carbon paper works something like this. You have the carbon paper itself, which is a thin piece of paper covered on one side with some kind of ink or pigment often bound to the paper with wax. And then to use the carbon paper, uh, you would create a stack of at least three sheets of paper lined up on top of one another. So you'd have the original paper copy on top, and then you'd have the carbon paper in the middle underneath that, and then you'd have the paper you intended for the second copy on the bottom. So you write or type your message on the top sheet, and as you do, the pressure from your pencil or pen bearing down or the pressure from the type bars of a typewriter striking the page will cause the dried ink or pigment uh, on the back of the carbon paper sheet to leave a mark on the copy page underneath. So the work of making one copy creates a second copy automatically. The pressure pushes the pigment through and it imprints on that second page. Credit for the invention of carbon paper is often given to an English inventor named Ralph Wedgwood because of an 1806 patent he received for an invention called the uh, Manifold Stylographic Writer. Uh, So this is an invention that, like the polygraph, uh, drew the interest of Thomas Jefferson. And in a letter to Charles Wilson Peale in 1809, remember Charles Wilson Peale 
was the guy who perfected the design of the polygraph. Jefferson complained that the carbon paper only really worked if you wrote with a hard pointed stylus on a hard surface, which Mm -hmm. uh, I guess he didn't like to do. And also complained that quote, the smell of the paper is so fetid that one could not stay in a room where there was much of it. This is something we'll we'll come back to uh, numerous times here, but, uh, we're we're so far removed from this for the most part in today's world. Like we don't think about the uh, the fact that you might need to open a window or have proper ventilation in a room if you're going to be engaging in the work of the scribe and, and or uh, any kind of uh, document duplication. But this seems to be the the, the case. You see this referenced uh, in, you know multiple times. Yeah, well, I mean, so a lot of these methods would produce fumes, though it's funny, he's complaining about the smell here. Some of the technologies we're going to talk about in a bit, I guess they would have been using different kinds of dyes or inks or something, mm-hmm. uh, produce smells that, that many ha- many people today, still alive today, have great nostalgia for. Have, have you found uh, the part of the internet where everybody's just like, oh, I miss the smell of the mimeograph? Um I, I did not find that part of the internet, but I did find some wonderful videos with people demonstrating some of these uh, uh, these techniques, which I found very helpful because some of the the techniques we end up talking about there there may be a little difficult to picture in your mind, uh, mm. but if you see someone doing it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I can I, I can see what's what what they're doing there. I see the process. I see how this is producing a duplication of text. Yeah, uh, we'll try to be as clear as we can to to help you picture it. But yeah, looking up videos is always helpful. Um, So carbon paper was not like a photocopier. Again, you could not mechanically produce copies of a pre-existing document. Instead, it was more like the polygraph machine. It was an invention that would allow you to produce extra copies of a document at the point of the document's composition or at the point of uh, the copying. You know, it, it takes writing or typing in order to make the copies, though it will give you extra copies. But assuming you're either composing in the first place or you're able to type or write out a copy by hand, you actually didn't have to stop at that single carbon paper sandwich and its single extra copy. You could actually create a stack of carbon paper sandwiches. So you'd have original on top, then carbon paper, then the paper for the first copy, then carbon paper, then paper for the second copy, and so forth. But as you might imagine, the quality of the copies deteriorates pretty rapidly the further down the stack you go. Mm. So there was a technical limit to how many copies you could duplicate from a single original if you cared about them being legible. I think anyone who has used a physical checkbook can probably uh, understand what we're getting at here because uh, the, the physical checkbook will often have those carbon pages that, that mean that when you write out that check, you have an automatic copy of it underneath on the carbon sheet however you can it's not going to be as clear as your original check it's going to be you know very legible you can imagine if you had multiple layers uh you know there are going to be huge limitations about how deep you can go Apparently, the use of carbon paper uh, became even more pronounced starting in the the late 19th century, around the 1870s or 1880s, with the uh, spread of typewriters, Mm. since, you know, the hard punch of a typewriter key, when that bar hits the page, that's pretty good at driving the carbon imprint through several layers. But carbon paper is not going to solve all of the world's uh, duplication need problems, because so in the last episode, you know, we talked about the difficulties created when you need a medium number of copies of something, and it's something of medium importance. So if you just need two or three copies, you could use the existing methods. You could use carbon paper, or you could use the copy press. 
if you needed thousands of copies of something and you had the budget and the time and the access, you could hire out a printing press and they'd do all the, you know, the, the setting the movable type and they'd print out a run for you. Mm-hmm. But if you're in the medium zone, say you just need 50 copies of something, uh, especially if it is some piece of ephemeral office memoranda, some kind of small business document or if it's a grade school worksheet or a church bulletin or anything in that kind of category, it would not make sense to hire out a printing press. You know, you, you don't have the time, the labor and the money involved would just not really be justified for that kind of printing. And yet it's definitely more than you could easily make with a stack of carbon paper sandwiches under a pencil or a typewriter. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of mid-level document duplication for, uh, for, for schools, for small businesses, for whatever, was constantly in demand all throughout society, but there was nothing exactly to satisfy this kind of need until we get to a, uh, a, a few inventions uh, that we'll mention in just a minute. But briefly, before we leave the idea of carbon paper, I, I just wanted to uh, flag an interesting fact that even though carbon paper is pretty much obsolete – it is still latent in our language. For example, when you talk about a carbon copy of something uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. that yeah. comes from the idea of carbon paper, uh, and it's even there in our email fields. You know, if you CC somebody on an email, the CC stands for carbon copy, which is funny because, uh, you know, I'm sure in offices of, uh, uh, of 60, 70 years ago, it was an everyday occurrence that you'd type up a letter and send it to somebody. And then there would be a carbon, you know, a copy made with carbon paper underneath it that would go to the person who you literally wanted to CC on that physical message. Uh, but now we're doing it with digital duplication and the digital duplication possible with a computer has so much more fidelity than carbon paper copies ever did. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I don't think I knew this until just now that what yeah. CC stood for. I, I just never thought about it. But but yeah, to, to your point, you can you can CC a single individual on an email, which falls in line with what you would be doing with carbon copy. But you can also, especially with like a distribution list, you can CC everyone within a given corporation. Yes, that sort of thing, which is well beyond what you would have been able to handle with carbon paper. Oh, that ties into something I, w- I want to get back to later on. Uh, but first, uh, let's talk the mimeograph. Uh, so, so here's where Thomas Edison enters the picture. Yeah. So uh, I was reading about some of these technologies in a book from 1998 titled Before Photocopying, The Art and History of Mechanical Copying by Barbara J. Rhodes and William W. Um, Streeter. And uh, in this, they, they were talking a little bit about uh, the mimeograph and um, uh, they said that uh, it is um, essentially an American file plate stencil duplicator. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in this book about the different terms for what these different technologies are. And a patent for this sort of device had been filed uh, for this by duplication inventor uh, Eugenio D. Zucato. And I believe this was 1874. So his idea was to use a thin sheet of paper that was coated with wax on one side, And uh, you do your writing then over a rough surface. And this is described in the book as as a surface being like that of a file, you know, like the rough rough metal surface that you use to file something down with. Mm. Uh, But you're putting your your wax-coated paper on top of that, and then you bust out your metal stylus. And the the pressure applied to the paper over the rough edges in the writing surface would cause uh, perforations in both the wax and the paper fibers. The stylus would also displace some of the wax, but the key here is that the ink could then flow into these perforations to reproduce the writing. 
Now, this was also called the papyrograph, and then there was a more advanced typograph that was also produced. Uh, the main drawback to this uh, this technological approach was just the, the cost of the plate itself, which was um, was not just something that could be thrown together. You would have to have a, a skilled uh, individual create these things. Yeah, and th- this is the principle of the stencil. The, the mimeograph is going to become one of the major duplication technologies of the last couple centuries, and it operates on the principle of a stencil, similar to screen printing techniques that were not new at this time. They'd been in use for hundreds of years in China and Japan, I think especially for, uh, for uh, printing on cloth or garments. Yeah, it's worth noting that a number of these now outdated duplication techniques uh, have been reclaimed by artists. Uh, artists, uh, especially yeah. like fiber artists and so forth, have gone back and looked at them and figured out ways to play with them and create unique uh, artistic expressions through them. But let's get back to Edison, because Edison wants a slice, right? Right. Okay, yeah. So in 1876, the American inventor and, uh, according to some patent hoarder, uh, <laughs> Thomas Edison, received a patent for the device that would come to be known as the mimeograph. It wasn't called this initially. And this would be one of the most important duplication technologies, basically until the advent of computers and photocopiers a century later, uh, though there was also a, an important competing technology that I think, Rob, you're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but basically, Edison's version was you would use an electric pen, which was part of the patent, to cut out a stencil page. So imagine writing out your document. You, you do your writing of text or drawing of illustrations, whatever it is you want to copy, not with ink on paper, but with this electric pen that would cut holes in a type of card sheet. Mm. And then you would smash the stencil page in a flatbed press between an ink-soaked surface and a blank piece of paper. And so the ink would traverse through the gaps in the stencil and then make a near-perfect copy of your stencil document. Now, not long after Edison's patent, there were some design improvements introduced by a Chicago inventor named Albert Blake Dick, who came up with the idea of calling it the mimeograph. And while the earliest model was a flatbed press, later models tended to use uh, sometimes a rolling press, which could be operated by a hand crank or even by an electric motor. And uh, you could say there were pros and cons of the mimeograph. There were a lot of pros, actually. Like with a mimeograph, you could make pretty much as many copies as you wanted. Uh, It wasn't like carbon paper where legibility declined significantly after the third copy. Uh, It tended to be very cheap. I mean, I think even actually buying the mimeograph machine itself was pretty cheap. I I wonder if part of that – I'm not sure about this, but I wonder if part of that is that manufacturers were – selling the mimeograph machine uh, at a pretty low rate because they knew they could continue to sell the equipment that went with it, like the mm. uh, the ink and the, the stencil uh, cards and stuff. But, of course, there were, there were still cons. Uh, this was still not a method for immediately producing a facsimile or copy of an existing document. So, like a lot of the other methods we've talked about, this duplication technique still requires work to happen at the front end of the copying process. You had to cut out the stencil, mm-hmm. which uh, th- there were methods for doing with, you know, either like the, uh, the hand operated stylus or with, uh, with say a typewriter of sorts and you could punch out the stencil, but you had to make it at the front end. You couldn't just take a document, stick it in there and get copies to come out. Right. Or you would at least have to make use of someone who is acting in the role of a scribe to yeah. take your document and transcribe it into the mimeograph format so that it then could be uh, duplicated uh, with ease. 
Yeah. Now, the mimeograph was not on its own because there was another sort of parallel technology that did pretty much the same thing but worked differently, widely known as the ditto machine. But I think the the principle underneath it is the idea of a spirit duplicator. And actually, when I mentioned there was uh, nostalgia for the smell of the mimeograph, uh, I can't remember if I said this, but there's apparently nostalgia for the smell of the spirit duplicator (laughs) as well. People liked sniffing these things. Well, we'll get to the the smell uh, here in a second. Um, now, I'll be the first to admit that the idea of, of a spirit duplicator was instantly appealing because my mind instantly went to uh, the, the idea of the, of the of the you know the spirit in the supernatural or religious sense. Um, uh, so I was wondering, okay, is this a device by which the human soul may be duplicated, or perhaps it's a means by which a, the haunting spirit of the deceased might be reproduced? Uh, it also made me think of—I uh, haven't actually seen this film, but I'm, uh, it has wonderful posters—the 1965 sci-fi film, *The Human Duplicators*. <laughs> oh, that's got a good tagline. It says, "Made to kill or love on command." A masterpiece of shock in color. I've I've never seen this one. But in the interest of, uh, as we always try to, uh, making the mundane weird again, I mean, it it is important to remember that there is a kind of spirit duplication going on with all of these machines, which are, these are mechanical methods for making the contents of someone else's brain yeah. visible to people across time and space. Absolutely. So, yeah, the spirit is not uh, completely, uh, uh, you know, off the mark here. Uh, but the spirit in Spirit Duplicator is actually referring to alcohol. Uh, but it's, it's still very interesting, also known as, uh, as a rexograph, ditto machine, also the banda machine. Uh, and I was reading about this again in Before Photocopying by Rhodes and Streeter. Uh, according to the authors, it is a variation of the hectograph. And a hectograph is something that uh, I must admit also sounds like weird magic when I initially read about it. You know, the idea that, say, a wizard may produce a copy of a sacred text by first filling a shallow pan with a certain slime, and then the (laughs) wizard may place the document in the slime. The slime shall copy the words and glyphs therein, and applying a second piece of paper to the pan, the slime shall imprint upon it the sacred magics. I mean, that's not far off because this method literally uses like gelatin, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this is one where uh, I recommend, I do recommend looking up a video of this because I, I, I had to look at a video to really get it, uh, the, the, uh, exactly what a hectograph is. But basically, uh, a special pen is used to write the original document. And I've, I've read that the teachers would use this to do lesson plans. Uh, you would, uh, and, uh, and also you would have a tray of gelatin uh, that was prepared, or you might have a gelatin pad, and uh, you, you press and roll the paper against the gelatin, and then you remove it. And now when you press blank sheets against the gelatin, it re-imprints the contents of the original document. Wow. So, like, again, it's pretty cool. Worth looking up a video of. So you make a special print original, then you smash it into a big tray of jello, and then you press pages against the jello to get the to get the copies off. Correct. Yeah. All right, so now let's get back to the spirit duplicator, a machine that hinges on some of these techniques. So according to Rhodes and Streeter, the hectographic carbon sheets formed the basis here. Quote, 
which was carried out on hectograph machines with rotary cylinder printing surfaces. The master sheet was typed with the carbon sheet behind it so as to create a reverse image of the text. It was then fastened to the cylinder with the ink facing out. And then they continue, uh, a master was prepared, then run under a cylinder with a gelatin-coated covering. This picked up the ink, as would a roll of hectographic paper, to create the quote-unquote negative from which the copies would be made. This sounds slimy and complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they go on to write that in spirit duplicators, blank sheets of paper are run under the cylinder on a a carriage, uh, moistened first with a special duplicating liquid. And this liquid is where the spirit comes in because we're talking about an alcohol-based liquid that dissolves small amounts of ink on the master sheet uh, or gelatin cylinder and then transfers that to blank sheets. Mm. So that's the spirit. That's the alcohol playing an important part. So these were in action by the late 1920s, and they apparently printed darker in a good way and more uniformly than purely gelatin methods, like I was talking about earlier. Uh, Also, they point out that these copies were more permanent as they dyed the fibers of the paper uh, as well, as opposed to just the surface of the paper. Uh, So it was good for, quote, small to medium print orders, um, and it was often seen as an ideal thing for a school or a, you know office setting, small businesses, etc. Good for newsletters. The main drawback they mention is just the initial cost of the machine. But I've also seen some papers out there at least discussing the possibility of harmful methanol fumes uh, from this device, at least if the machine was used in a place without ideal ventilation. Mm. But then, like you said, some people were just super nostalgic for the uh, the smell, I guess, of uh, of all of this um, uh, methanol coming off of the the, the 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 document duplication process. Well, let me be clear: I'm not encouraging people to inhale harmful fumes for nostalgia's uh, sake. I I'm just reporting what I saw people saying. But it's interesting, right? Because within this machine, we have yeah, we have mechanical technology, we have a chemical approach to duplication as well as a physical. You know, you're talking about rollers and imprinting and so forth, and and the alteration of paper. And I was also reading that like the basic process involved here uh, is apparently still used by some tattoo artists as a means of applying an initial temporary tattoo to guide the permanent work. So perhaps if there are any tattoo artists out there, uh, you can chime in on this, this, uh, on this uh, factoid. Oh, I should also mention, you know, describing this process, yes, uh, videos are helpful, but also you might look up a photograph of the machine itself um, <laughs> because it, uh, it, it's, it's rather interesting. I'm not sure I would be able to identify what it is if I saw it. I might guess that it's something involved in printing or something with paper. Um, you, you definitely see like a large, in the, the model I was looking at here, you do see a large like drum rolling cylinder and you see, uh, you know, the, the various uh, apparatuses there that are necessary to guide paper through it. And I guess you're also seeing various dials uh, uh, in, in, uh, that are in place so you can uh, apply certain settings to the process. Now, eventually, after this era, we do get into the the modern realm of uh, of photocopiers based on things like xerography, and to computers, of course, which you know, uh, digital duplication of documents is is a whole other realm. It's sort of like the the uh, a, a real um, boundary has been crossed once you're talking about digital duplication. Uh, we don't have time today to talk about all of the other duplication technologies that came in between, but I did briefly want to talk about the xerography process that made photocopying possible because uh, before this, I actually 
would not have been able to explain how that worked. I didn't know, mm-hmm. but uh, in reading about it, it's pretty interesting. So the photocopier uh, rose during the second half of the 20th century, and it operates on this principle called xerography, which translates essentially to dry writing because a photocopier uses no wet ink. Instead, it uses a type of uh, dry ink. You could think of a, a dry uh, coloring agent called toner. And the main principle that enables the uh, the copying of imagery or documents through the photocopier is static electricity. So inside a photocopier machine, there is an electrostatically charged surface made out of a photoconductive material. And this element is known as the drum. This is down inside the machine underneath that transparent surface where you lay down the, the document you want to copy. So you lay your original down, face down on this transparent surface and then uh, I guess usually you want to cover it. So, but the machine shines a really bright light up against the original page. And that light is reflected off of the page back onto the drum. Again, the drum is this uh, electrostatically charged metal surface. But the key is that the light is reflected selectively based on what is on the page you're shining the light on. So white and brightly colored areas on the page, such as blank space, will reflect a lot of light, while uh, black and darkly shaded areas of the page, such as the letters on a text document, will reflect little to no light. And this light pattern reflects onto the drum, which is selectively electrically modified by it. So the areas hit by bright light become electrically neutralized, while the areas not hit by bright light retain their charge. And then the toner, which is a collection of these uh, charged particles with some kind of pigmentation on them, uh, that's then applied to the drum. And the toner has an opposite charge to the initial charge of the drum. So uh, through static electricity, it sticks to whichever parts of the drum received less light. So for example, the marked parts of a document. And then the drum is applied to oppositely charged paper, printing a copy of whatever was dark on the original page. And then finally, the toner is fused to the page, usually by some combination of heat and pressure, uh, which I guess uh, probably some of that fusing process uh, gives the, uh, the pages coming out of a photocopier also their own distinct smell, yes. which I don't mm-hmm. actually have very fond memories of. Really? I don't know. You were just describing it, and I, I, it kind of took me back to making, f- uh, f- for photocopying pages out of books in college. Uh, oftentimes, it felt like just way too many pages out of books. Yeah. Uh, and there would be a distinct, like the, the paper kind, it's all hot, and it has that odor to it. And uh, I was also just thinking about, you know, you're talking about the way it captures text and, and images. If, you ha- if your page happened to have, say, a woodcut illustration on it, well, that might transfer uh, perfectly, depending how you know ultimately dark the background is. But then, if you had say a, 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 a uh, you know, say an oil painting or something in there, some you know classic uh, work of art, uh, it might just come out as a black smudge on on your page. So, so the, yeah, there were definite limitations depending on what you were trying to duplicate through this uh, through this machine. Yeah, I think the xerography technique would work better for original uh, imagery that was already high contrast. Mm-hmm. And the wider the background, the better. I think I remember also running into that issue if you had like kind of dark paper um, mm. or darker paper than, than normal, you could end up with kind of a real grimy look to it that was difficult to read. 
but I'm talking about this technology like we don't still use it today. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, they're, 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 uh, you can still you can still have find ready access to uh, to Xerox machines and so forth. Though there's, I would argue, in in many ways, far less need for it than there once was, just because of how much duplication takes place purely in the digital realm now. Yeah, unless you're going through a process where physical copies are required and uh, and and so forth, then. Uh, then yeah, you probably don't need to use this machine. And it, began, it seems like we, even in the over the past fifteen years, you know, we've seen more of a a movement towards say digital signatures on things. Right, and and so the era of digital document sharing and duplication has introduced, you know, it's solved a lot of problems that existed during the era of of only physical duplication. Uh, but it's also introduced some new ones. I mean, we've already alluded to issues with security. Like originally, if you had a very sensitive document, say you wanted to show it to 10 people, you could maybe show it to them and then collect all 10 copies back and you'd know that you had all of them. Uh, of course, it becomes harder to control that information in its original form if you're sharing it digitally. And of course, there's a whole uh, you know realm of digital security solutions that have evolved specifically to combat that kind of problem. But there's another problem I think that is faced in the era of limitless, lossless copying of, of documents through digital means. And that is, uh, I guess actually a suite of problems that have to do with the changing economics of like reading and attention time. So we used to live in a global situation of document scarcity where it was, uh, where it was, you know, cost intensive to both in terms of like labor and economics to make copies of documents. So, as one uh, almost maybe trivial sounding uh, consequence of that, I wonder how much that encouraged brevity in documents. Actually, like, would would there be a pressure? to be more short and to the point about documents that, you know, in a realm in which any copying of that document would have to be done by hand. Uh, and do documents have a tendency to grow unnecessarily long if there's no palpable cost associated with adding additional lines and pages to that document when you need to copy and share it? Yeah, that's a good point. This And this got me thinking about, um, you know, like, uh, really long novels and, and how especially in like paperback form they could they could be often just like almost un, unreadable mm-hmm. uh you know we've talked about that in the past one particular edition of dune that came out oh uh, yeah is a real eye strainer super tiny print yeah mm-hmm. uh, oh, so, oh, but I, I was even just thinking as it applies to you know the kind of documents that you would share in a business context at right. work yeah uh, like keep it to one page because it's that much more of a pain to to uh, go and then use the mimeograph machine to create two pages. Or especially if this is before the mimeograph, yeah. and you've got somebody like typing out copies on a typewriter. I mean, oh, okay. th- this is a huge part of labor. All, you know, Even in the 20th century, when the mimeograph existed, there was a lot of labor that just went into typing copies of things on, on carbon sheets. Yeah. Now, another interesting thing to think about uh, was when you get into the realm of the printing press and you get into the realm of newspapers, and just like the physical layout of a newspaper – at times it's going to constrict you, but other times it's going to create extra space that then has to be filled. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so there's a, an interesting sort of uh, uh, push and pull when you start thinking about like the physical demands of the medium and what they require you to do to fill that medium. There's another thought I was having that is along these lines, but framed a little bit differently. Um, 
And that's that another way to think about this is that over the course of the last few thousand years, we have transitioned from a, uh, a, a regime of extreme document scarcity, you know, like books were rare and extremely expensive documents were incredibly laborious to make copies of to not only an environment of document abundance, but an environment of document engorgement. I mean, we are overloaded with access to documents Honestly, 99% of which are of really no relevance to us. All the spam email you get, that is people sharing documents with you that are not actually of interest to you. Uh, and and this happens, you know, not just in your email inbox, but all the time. I mean, you're, you're constantly being presented with especially digital access to pieces of written information that are competing for your time and attention, but they're not actually important to you. So when there's too much to read and too much to share with limitless, lossless digital copying of documents, the problem of the world becomes not how do I get the information I need, but how do I tell which information is important and prioritize that? In fact, I would say that this is one of the major uh, uh, new problems created by the digital era, just being constantly uh, presented with digital information that is essentially free for people to produce and put in front of you. So you're just constantly wading through all of this documentary noise to try to direct your attention to whatever information is actually of relevance to your life. Yeah. And even when you have constraints in place, like the fact that a lot of ebooks. I mean, there are a lot of ebooks you can get for free, certainly. Um, but then you do have to buy a lot of ebooks as well. But uh, your major platforms are going to provide you with free samples. And so yeah. it's easy to just overload yourself with free samples of things that you might conceivably read and then are therefore uh, easy to, uh, to then go on and purchase if you decide you're going to keep going with it. Whereas, in, when you're dealing with physical books, I mean, yeah, you're making use of the libraries uh, would ease things. But still, like you could only check out so many physical books at a time. You could only probably buy so many physical books or would only buy so many physical books at a time. And so there's a certain level of commitment there. Like, okay, this is the book I'm going to I'm gonna go for. I'm going to give this one a go. Uh, uh, and I'll return it or if I don't want it or you know, maybe I can trade it in or something. But um, now the options are, they can certainly be overwhelming. I would say that the same sort of uh, information overabundance problem applies even, say, within the controlled information flow of an office setting, where, you know, no disrespect to, to one's uh, bosses and coworkers and all that. But I think anybody who works in an office is familiar with the problem of constantly receiving emails that are, are not of any use to you, but you're, mm -hmm. they're taking your time because it was free to copy you on this email. So right. th there's a massive amount of like <laughs> lost productivity even in, in an office setting where there's limitless lossless copying and sharing of documents because you can share this document with everybody. So why not do it? But it'll take people time of looking at that document uh, to figure out that it's not actually useful th to them and get back to whatever it is they needed to be doing. And then imagine maybe this happens uh, dozens or hundreds of times a day for all of your employees. Right, right. Yep. Here it comes. It's a company-wide email. Welcome, Dale. And then, <laughs> and then lo and behold, uh, sometimes it feels like hundreds of people do welcome Dale and go ahead and CC the entire company on their welcoming of Dale. Well, I mean, in a way, that's nice, but yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
I mean, kudos to Dale. He's a hard worker. I, I mean, welcoming people is nice, but I, I guess there probably are more and less uh, time and uh, labor effective ways to do that. But then again, on the other hand, creating documents, duplicating documents, and getting them to the people uh, that need them, this has also led to the, you know, the, it's, a, it's a frequent, almost a meme at this point, this meeting could have been an email, you know, yes. where oftentimes it is easier to just create the document than to get everybody to even virtually assemble for some sort of a, a meeting that is about the, the dissemination of information. I mean, I feel like the solution for a lot of the things we've been talking about is to keep a more uh, human-centric mindset when creating and sharing documents. Like, remember that a, a document is a bid for somebody's time and attention, which is valuable. And uh, so, like, if you're going to make that document and you're going to share it with them, it's worth having a, a personal ethos. And if you're a company or something, having a company ethos of saying, like, is this actually the best use of the time of the people I'm going to be sharing this with? Hmm. And being conscious of the fact that every time somebody gets another document shared with them, especially in a you know high high information traffic environment, you you are necessarily making their day a little more confusing. <laughs> so you know, uh, it, it should at least have some information that is relevant or helpful to them. Right. Okay. Well, we've we've come a long way. We, you know, we, we, we live in this age now of hyper-document uh, duplication. But uh, on, on, on another uh, level, I mean, we are the human duplicators. Like, duplication of information uh, has been a part of, uh, of human civilization for a very long time. Uh, so I, I think it's a worthwhile experience uh, and um, an exercise uh, to go through, at least in very broad strokes, uh, the history of document duplication here. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about related topics, uh, yeah, we've covered writing, books, uh, various, various other uh, r- related topics on Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, in the past. Uh, you can find those episodes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core episodes of our show that publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have a listener mail episode that airs on Monday. On Wednesday, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside uh, most of the, the, the science and technology and philosophy and history and just talk about a weird motion picture. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.